Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest Investec economic webcast. I'm Philip Shaw. I'm chief economist for Investec here in rainy London this morning. With the US election due in just under two weeks' time, um, this is very much going to be our focus at today's session. And to guide us through implications for markets, I've got a couple of Investec colleagues with me who are experts in their field. First of all, we have John Wynne Evans. John is Head of Investment Strategy at Investec Wealth. Uh, I know, John, you're a long-suffering Everton fan, so you must be pretty happy at the moment. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Making the most of it while we possibly can, I would say. <laughs> um, second, uh, we've got Kieran Russell. Uh, Kieran is one of our senior FX strategists. He's spent uh, 20 years in markets and nearly 10 of those years here with us at Investec. Uh, he's been in various sales roles across different asset classes, but since 2007, Kieran's focus has been on FX markets, specifically helping corporates to manage their FX risk and derivatives exposure. Morning, Kieran. Morning, everyone. And uh, yep, look forward to, to talking to you about uh, foreign exchange markets shortly. Okay, so I'm going to kick off um, with a little bit of background on the US election. Uh, of course, we'll have the opportunity for a Q&A session at the end. And uh, for those of you who are regular attendees at our events, um, um, you'll know what to do. But um, for those of you that are not, to ask a question, simply type in your question in the Q&A panel on the right-hand side of your screen and um, select Ask All Panelists. Uh, just a couple more housekeeping points. Firstly, that all attendees will be on mute. Secondly, that if you've got any problems with the audio, please type in a, a help message to our audio visual team and, and someone will be there to help you. And lastly, we're recording the session um, and our comments do not constitute investment advice. Okay, I think a fortnight ago we had a a webinar on Brexit, and I think given the events over the last couple of weeks, it would be somewhat remiss of me um, to skip over it. So I'll, I'll, I'll just um, give you some of our thoughts on what's been happening. And obviously, there are still disagreements between the UK and the EU on fishing rights. And last week's summit of EU leaders uh, concluded that, number one, they were not going to step up the pace of talks and intensify them. And secondly, that it was up to the UK to give ground on points of disagreement and compromise. And what we had effectively at the start of the week was Boris saying to Michel Barnier, look, don't bother coming to London unless you shift on this. And subsequently, the EU has said, yes, we will intensify the talks. But even after a second phone call this week between Barnier um, and uh, Lord Frost, the chief UK negotiator, um, there hasn't been um, an agreement by the EU to compromise. So um, no talks, therefore, at the moment, no deal. Um, as we outlined a couple of weeks ago, potentially nasty scenario for the economy and the currency. Um, we do expect some moves to reinitiate talks soon, it has to be said. Um, France wants to maintain its fishing rights in the UK waters. They can't do that if there is no deal. Um, so if you can overcome the political sensitivities, I think it's likely that the two sides will get round the table again and hammer out a deal by what we see as the effective deadline in mid-November. Just a handful of final points before we move on to the US, and, and that's that, um, as I mentioned, no deal would be an absolute disaster for the French fishing industry, so that will probably concentrate the French mines. 
Um, secondly, that trade agreements uh, and EU deals as well are, are never done early. It's always the last minute um, agreement. But from the point of view of financial markets, we would hope to get a line of sight that an agreement is in prospect before it actually happens. Um, and thirdly, I guess I'm trying to be logical and rational here, but there is the chance that something irrational happens, uh, which could mean that the talks fall apart. So although our baseline case is very much there will be a deal, it's not impossible that there is a no deal. Um, and I think that should be borne in mind. Okay, uh, moving on to the US election. Uh, of course, the key date is November the 3rd, just uh, under two weeks' time. Um, I'm going to simplify slightly and give you a bit of a, a, a 101 on, on US politics to give you a background for those of you not familiar with it. And in terms of the US political system, there are three key institutions um, that legislate, and they are the presidency and the two houses of Congress, which are the Senate and the House of Representatives. Um, there's an inbuilt system of checks and balances, which means that uh, a party really needs control of each area, of every area, to be able to govern easily without gridlock. Of course, President Trump um, is a Republican president, but Congress is split. The House of Representatives is controlled by the Democrats and the Senate by the Republicans. And as well as the presidential elections, uh, voters are also choosing members of the House and the Senate at the same time. And in addition, there are elections for various state and local uh, posts as well. So the question, how does this all work? Well, the president isn't elected by a simple majority of voters, but by the electoral college system. And each of the 50 states, plus uh, the District of Columbia, has an election where the winner sends delegates to the electoral college. Now, the number of delegates from each state um, varies according to the size of the state's population. So the largest states are California, then Texas, New York, uh, and Florida. And there's a total of 538 delegates. Um, in the House of Representatives, all 435 Congress people are due for election, or re-election every two years. And the Senate has 100 seats, um, and senators serve a six-year term. So what you will find this time around, around the third of the seats, it's actually 35 seats are up for grabs. And of those, 12 are currently held by the Democrats, 23 by the Republicans. So that's a very broad brush background to the structure of the elections. Now, what are the polls actually saying? Now, President, um, at present, we've got um, a clear lead in the Democrats, uh, for the Democrats. Joe Biden is leading by between eight to 10% uh, of the popular vote. Um, but if you dial back to 2016, Hillary Clinton actually won the popular vote by around two percentage points, but she lost narrowly. And she lost because she lost some of the key states in the Electoral College. The battleground states, therefore, are all important. They're, if you like, they're analogous to the marginal seats in UK elections. And in particular, the important states here will be Florida, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and a few other ones. Now, in the top half a dozen battlegrounds, Biden is up by around 4% in the polls. Look, he does appear to be heading for victory at the moment. Things can change, but at the moment, he is the clear favorite. One of the issues President Trump has is that he can't get the coronavirus away as being a key election issue, obviously having um, 
contracted the virus himself. It's more difficult still. Uh, there's a debate between uh, himself and Joe Biden tomorrow night. Will that change things? Well, if the first one is anything to go by, you know, probably not. In terms of the other elections, the House, that's probably an easy call. Um, the Democrats at the moment hold 232, I think, of the 435 seats, and they look set to keep control. The interesting election, or the most interesting one, is the Senate. And at the moment, the Republicans hold 53 of the 100 seats. Um, but they are playing defense, if you like. As I said, they're defending 23 of the 35 Senate seats up for grabs. In terms of the individual states, they're likely to recapture Alabama from the Democrats. Um, so if the Senate's to change hands, the Democrats really need to capture five seats. And the polls are there suggesting um, Democrats will win Arizona, Colorado, Maine, Iowa, North Carolina. Um, it's possible there are two seats um, being um, contested in Georgia. They both seem to be in play. Montana's in play as well. Um, so it looks as if it's going to be tight, but we'd say that the Democrats are favorites to win the Senate. Now, again, remember, these are separate elections from the presidential elections themselves, even though they're taking place on the same day. One interesting nuance is that if the Senate is tied 50-50, then the vice president has the casting vote. So if Biden wins, um, the Democrats will have an effective majority in the Senate in, in, in that scenario. So the conclusion then is, you know, it's not clear cut, but we've shifted our central view now so that we now expect a, not just Biden to win and the Democrats to hold the House, but to capture the Senate from the Republicans as well. So, you know, it's a bit, if you like, called a blue wave, a clean sweep of the presidency, the Senate and the House. What does this mean briefly in terms of policy? Well, I'll, I'll just mention two areas here. First off, there's been a change, particularly on market attitudes to Biden victory. The focus has swung away very much from Biden's um, plans to raise taxation, uh, which, given still the uncertainty of the, the outlook of the US and the world economy, isn't likely to happen yet, towards a shorter term policy, which is to provide more fiscal stimulus. So if Biden wins, um, and the Republicans hold the Senate, then you've, you've got gridlock. And that's one reason why the elections to the Senate are, are so important. Secondly, um, we expect Biden to take a, a far less belligerent attitude towards China than, than, than President Trump. So with that very brief, broad background, um, I'll just say um, that in terms of markets, stocks have been you know, being lifted by um, Biden's stimulus hopes, i.e. with the presidency um, going Democratic and, and the Senate as well. Um, the spending, which Biden is promising, would raise the deficit absolutely. Um, would that make it more difficult to finance? Well, our guess is that the Federal Reserve, if there were um, problems in, in financing or if you saw Treasury yields going up, they would provide or step up the pace of quantitative easing and I guess in effect monetizing some of the extra deficit there. In terms of the dollar, um, are currency markets wary of the Democrats taking power? Um, question mark. <laughs> Does it um, soften in a risk friendly environment? 
another question mark. It's really not clear. We're actually skeptical of both of those assertions. And it could well be that the US dollar strengthens a little simply on the prospect of um, firmer US growth prospects. Um, so a couple of final points before I hand over to John. Um, markets can be quite fickle, and that was certainly the case on election night in 2016. Um, I was up watching most of the night, and what we saw was when it was clear that Trump was going to win, um, you had a big sell-off in stocks or in the US stock futures um, because of a, a, a fear of a global trade war. Now, that lasted about four or five hours before markets suddenly realized that Trump was, was going to engage in a big fiscal stimulus. And that started off an equity market bull run. Do polls get it wrong? Um, of course they do. Um, a lot of people are saying, oh, the polls aren't capturing shy Trump voters. He could still win. Of course, that's right. But my own personal suspicion is that um, a number of people are overcompensating for um, not getting the Trump victory correct in, in 2016. And it was much the same, I think, in the UK towards the end of last year, when a lot of people were saying, oh, no, the, the Tories won't win, the polls are wrong. Um, and, you know, they were overcompensating for a better Labour performance in 2017. So that, that's just one point on the polls. Um, one question, I guess, is what happens if Trump loses and refuses to go? Um, that's really not clear. Or what happens if the postal service is under so much strain that you get too many late ballots to, to call an election? Well, these are some of the questions perhaps we'll, we'll turn to in, in the Q&A session. So before then, um, I would like to hand over to John Wynne Evans. John. Uh, thanks very much, Phil. Um, uh, good morning, everybody. Obviously, this is a really fascinating uh, an interesting election, and in many respects, it's quite nice to be able to be watching events in another country uh, with slightly less kind of emotional tie-ins than we have when we've been looking at some of the events here in the UK over the last few years. Uh, but there's obviously no doubt that what happens in the US has a major effect on the rest of the world, uh, both from a policy perspective and uh, obviously from a financial and financial market perspective. And uh, recall that uh, the US stock market now accounts for around about 60% of the global market capitalization. Uh, so certainly for global investors, it's an extremely uh, important part of portfolios. Um, I'm going to look initially at the kind of, you know, the, the timeline and the path of what might happen over the next few weeks and, uh, and months. And uh, looking at it from a sort of neuroscientific uh, uh, angle, as it were, and uh, neuroscientists uh, have suggested that there are three things which humans like to have some certainty about in their lives uh, to become less stressed about life. And those three things are the outcome, the path and the duration uh, of any particular event. So uh, uh, you know, where are we going? Uh, how are we getting there and how long is it going to take, basically, is uh, what we need to know. And on all of those three factors, there is a great degree of uncertainty uh, at the moment as regards the US election and indeed a few other things that are going on right now, not least Brexit and uh, the COVID virus and, and the outlook for the vaccine, which I'll touch on um, uh, later. So in terms of the outcome, I mean, we do know we're going to get a US president, another US president, whether it's the same one 
uh, or a new one, uh, or possibly uh, an interim one if they can't agree by the 20th of January. But um, that's the date that we're all focused on, uh, 20th of January 2020. That's inauguration day. And basically the Constitution uh, says that there must be a, you know, the old president must go and a new one must come uh, by that particular date. Uh, of course, what we don't know is whether that president is going to be Joe Biden or whether it's going to be Donald Trump. Uh, neither do we know, as Phil referred to, whether uh, the Senate race is going to give the Democrats uh, much greater control uh, of all the levers of power or whether there's going to be a split Congress uh, as there is currently, which makes for a much more difficult uh, policy paths uh, through Capitol Hill. So that's the sort of the big question uh, on that front. And then there's also the question about whether there'll be a contested election, which Phil also referred to. That's if the uh, outcome is not clear, as it were, on the date. So in terms of the path, we've still got a couple of weeks to go, obviously, until Election Day. We've got the debate on Thursday night, which could throw up something new. Um, it's fair to say I think it's Biden's to lose. There's no doubt about the fact that he you know, came through the last one OK by dint of you know, not falling over and putting his foot in his mouth as much as anything else and letting Trump make all the mistakes. Uh, so he just has to really survive uh, Thursday night's event. And um, uh, then, you know, who knows what other news might leak out before the election. Obviously, four years ago, there was the FBI investigation into Hillary Clinton's private email service, which was very untimely for her hopes. At that particular point, there's no expectation of anything like that at the moment. But, um, you know, you wouldn't be surprised that the dirty tricks campaigners in both camps uh, have got something up their sleeves for a last minute uh, shock, as it were. Um, then obviously we've got the vote itself. Uh, will we wake up on November the 4th to find that Biden's had a landslide? Um, I think in terms of some of the uh, states that Phil was referring to, the swing states, I think one really important one will be Florida, uh, which is, you know, Biden's got a lead there at the moment. And it's a big state. I think there's 29 electoral college seats there. If Biden wins that one, then I think we're pretty much done and dusted uh, on that basis. So that will be a very key one to watch. And because it's an East Coast state, uh, we should get the results uh, reasonably early on that one. And they, they tend to be quite good at getting their counting done efficiently as well. Um, and also they're used to processing a lot of postal ballots in Florida too, unlike some of the other states. Um, and then there's the whole business about do we get a contested election? So remember in 2000, uh, it was Florida again. Remember the famous hanging chads uh, in the Gore-Bush election? Uh, that wasn't resolved until December the 12th. And so markets were quite wobbly through that period. Um, and as I say, you know, how long is it going to take uh, on that basis? So that's the duration um, aspect. Basically, what all this means is, at least for the time being, there's a little bit more uncertainty in markets. Um, and investors don't like uncertainty. They find uncertainty very difficult to price. Uh, that tends to lead to a slightly higher risk premium for financial assets, and it tends to lead to greater volatility uh, in markets as well. Now, you know, volatility is a word that's cast around as a bit as scary. You know, markets are going to be more volatile and all this sort of stuff. But I think it's worth reminding uh, investors that volatility is part and parcel of being an investor. Um, if you go back to S&P 500 data going back to 1929, so I think this holds quite a lot of uh, information, uh, the probability of losing money on a one-day view, being an investor in the in the main US index uh, is 46%. So it's basically, um, you know, almost half as many down days as up days over a long period of time. 
So markets are volatile. It's 38% over a month and it's 33% over a quarter. So, um, you know, when people talk, talk about market volatility, you know, don't, don't worry too much about that as it were. Markets are going to go up and down. And you can see that at the moment, you know, on almost a daily basis, uh, dependent on whether or not the fiscal stimulus package in the US is about to be uh, agreed between the two sides, you know, the market going up or down half percent, one percent on almost a daily basis at the moment. So when we kind of then look through what happens next, as it were, uh, let's say the election uh, is done, uh, we're working on the current probabilities uh, of expectation for the result. Uh, now, there's an organization in the states called 538, uh, which is based on the number of seats um, or number of electoral college votes, rather. Um, that's Nate Silver's organization. Um, and uh, he his projection currently is of an 88 percent probability of a Joe Biden presidential win. So that's that's very, very high at this point. Uh, they also have a 74 percent probability for the Democrats winning the Senate. So if you put those two together, you get a 65 percent, so roughly two thirds probability of a blue wave where basically the Democrats control um, all of those levers of government. So I'd say it's it's you know quite probable, but not fully priced in yet. Certainly, we've seen some moves in the market trying to you know price in a little bit more of that probability in recent weeks. But certainly there's a hell of a lot more to go for uh, once the result becomes clear. I think one of the key things that you get from a Biden government, and I think this is what we, you know, it, it's the change that we're going to have to focus on rather than the, you know, more of the same, as it were, um, is going to be a hell of a lot more spending. Now, in terms of a, a, a stimulus related purely to COVID, they're talking around about $3 trillion, maybe a little bit more than that as their next stimulus, stimulus package. And obviously, if they were able to get that through, uh, unopposed, uh, then that would uh, be a, a big boost for the economy. In addition to that, though, you know, you're talking about other spending on things like infrastructure and clean energy, uh, for example, and there could be another three trillion dollars of that over the course of uh, the uh, the next presidential uh, uh, lifespan, as it were. Um, and on the other side of that, obviously, they're going to have they are planning to raise some tax. And uh, the tax implications may be on the other side about $4 trillion. So it's a net $2 trillion benefit to the economy. So the economy is deemed to be a, you know, growing faster potentially under a Biden government than it would be under a Trump government. So that basically offsets any worries that people might have you know, about a, a kind of a, a more left-leaning perhaps uh, um, government in the United States. On the tax side, uh, there are three main angles to that. One is corporation tax, uh, which would go up from 21% to, on average, to 28%. That effectively reverses much of the uh, Donald Trump tax cuts that he put through in 2017. That's effectively sort of taking away a whole year of earnings growth, you could say, from the US market. But again, I think the market would look through that to a certain degree. Um, next year, you're, you're going to be seeing some quite strong advances in earnings anyway because of the recovery from COVID. Um, and also with greater certainty, perhaps around foreign policy and certainly, you know, less kind of uh, bellicose uh, attitude uh, than Trump has had, um, uh, that would be slightly deemed to be less risky as well. So net net, you have more growth, uh, less uncertainty, and that would be positive for riskier assets. I just look at the three main asset classes um, from the equity perspective. It would definitely be, you know, pro-cyclical. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the benefits would be looking at things like clean energy, the environment, infrastructure, education. 
On the negative side, potentially a bit of a negative for big tech if there is some intervention there in terms of more regulation. Uh, healthcare is a, a hardy old chestnut for the Democrats where they want to kind of reduce costs uh, of healthcare provision, particularly for the less well off and the aged. Uh, and the Affordable Care Act, uh, known as Obamacare, which uh, Barack Obama put through. That's something which Trump has been has spent his whole presidency trying to get rid of, uh, not entirely successfully, it's fair to say. And uh, the Democrats would uh, double up on that one if they were able to. And then another interesting one, uh, you know, there's potentially a ban on new uh, fracking, uh, so oil drilling on federal land. They're not going to shut down existing um uh drilling necessarily or not at all in fact um so that would be bad for certain areas of the market but yet sort of slightly counterintuitively it might take away some of future supply from the oil market and might actually make the oil price go up if that was the case so sometimes you don't quite always get to what you expect in all of these things um, from the government bond perspective, uh, you can see that with more supply coming through in terms of the extra debt, uh, extra growth and a push possibly towards slightly higher inflation, uh, you could see yields going up. Um, yields going up would not be, you know, be better news for savers, perhaps, but not great news for the market in terms of the discount rate going higher. Um, but then another big question is, what does the central bank, the Federal Reserve do? Are they going to be putting more quantitative easing in place? Will they try to hold the yield curve down? Um, that remains to be seen, but I think it's certainly a possibility. So I don't think you can see yields shooting upwards necessarily. And then uh, I'm going to leave Kieran to say most of the stuff on uh, foreign exchange. Um, our belief is that actually a Biden win pushes to a somewhat lower dollar. Uh, a lower, a weaker dollar tends to be better for non-US um, risk assets and equities, and particularly for emerging markets as well. And I think finally, just to say, if you bring together towards the end of this year resolution on the US election, uh, resolution on Brexit, let's say the deal is done, and uh, potentially good news uh, on a vaccine uh, gaining some kind of uh, emergency use authorization in the US, you could really have a very powerful background for quite a strong uh, rally in, in the more cyclical areas of the market and particularly those companies and industries which have been highly affected uh, by COVID. So you get a very different shape to the market from the one that's been led up by safer growth stocks and technology stocks and COVID beneficiaries for the last six months. So oddly, it could mean that the index overall doesn't do very much, but actually underneath the surface, a bit like the swans swimming along the river, the uh, legs could be paddling furiously in all sorts of directions. And with that, uh, I will hand back to Phil. That's terrific. Thanks very much, John. Very well summarized. Uh, and now if we could turn to Kieran Russell, who will share some of his thoughts on currency markets. Um, good morning, folks. Um, thanks, Phil. So I work on the currency desk here at Investec, helping corporates implement strategies to mitigate foreign exchange risk inherent in their businesses. Today, I'll be looking at the impact that the US election will have on currency markets, and I'll be running you through some of the considerations one needs to factor in when determining how currency markets will react to this key event. When considering the impact of the US election on currency markets, it's worth taking a moment to highlight the basic rule of thumb when it comes to trading and investing. John mentioned this earlier. Um, it, this is to do with the fact that markets do not like uncertainty. The more uncertainty there is, the more assets correlate as investors move to safe havens. In currency markets, this means that investors typically sell emerging market currencies and flock into safe havens such as the yen, the Swiss franc, and the US dollar. 
One only needs to look back at the last US election as an example of how one particular emerging markets currency was affected. Recall most experts thought Clinton would win. So when Trump upset the odds, despite the uh, polls tightening in the end, we saw the Mexican peso drop 17% in the immediate aftermath before later giving up some of those losses to settle around 13% lower. Okay, this is an extreme example aided by the Trump-Mexican wall saga, but you get the point. Um, in 2016, other safe havens such as the yen and gold jumped nearly four and five and a half percent respectively before also giving up some of those gains later on. Whilst the VIX, uh, which is a gauge of investor sentiment, otherwise known as the fear index, and the dollar index both rose in the month following uh, Trump's surprise victory. To drive the point home of how uncertainty surrounding US election outcomes can affect currency markets, we get similar results when looking back at previous elections too. For instance, in both 2004 and 2012, when the respective incumbents led the opinion polls and won the presidency, the dollar weakened against G10 and EMFX. Why? Because it could be argued that the market was more comfortable with continuity in leadership and therefore had greater risk appetite. Whilst in 2000, 2008, and 2016, as I just touched on, when the incumbents were not in the race, the dollar strengthened during the run-up to the elections. Why? Because the impending change of leadership brought with it uncertainty and therefore a reduced risk appetite. Of course, the above simplifies things. Um, as mentioned, well, as monetary policy and other factors play a part uh, in, in, in how currencies move too. But I hope that gives you a broad brush context around how uncertainty or risk appetite can play a part in currency movements over the US elections. The size of currency moves, however, can range from subtle to substantial to potentially catastrophic. It's always difficult trying to determine the size and scale of possible moves we'll see in currency markets on the back of election outcomes. But what we can do is use the FX options market um, for, for guidance as to how or whether a shock is, is, is probable or not. For instance, overnight implied volatility in euro dollar and sterling dollar, i.e. what the market is currently pricing for overnight volatility covering the actual election result, has been, to a great extent, steadily pricing out event risk premium from mid-September, with overnight implied vol trading around 35% lower since then. Interestingly, in 2016, there was a similar pricing out of risk pre volatility touched the lows about days before the election, slimmer timing to now, really. However, this was then followed by a sharp turnaround as polls tightened, and we all know what happened next. Current election being just two weeks away, or under two weeks away, really, early vote totals have been eye-popping. Roughly 30 billion ballots have already returned. This represents more than 20% of the total ballots that were cast in, in, in the 2016 presidential election. Ballots returned thus far skew heavily to the Democrat voters by a ratio of about three to one. However, it is unclear as of yet the extent to which these votes have simply cannibalized those which might have otherwise been cast on election day. Nonetheless, with, with Biden seemingly comfortably ahead in the polls, and with the election news flow surprises relatively low key, given the scrapping of the second face-to-face -face debate, for instance, um, it seems that event risk should continue to diminish. 
However, as we saw last time, a lot can change in the final two weeks. The final face-to-face -face tomorrow, of course. So our FX options traders will certainly be keeping a close eye on, on volatility and overnight volatility changes to ensure that we do not get too complacent and see a repeat of 2016. So against this backdrop and looking ahead, if we do not see the polls tighten and if we do not see a surprise as we did in 2016, what would a Biden election victory mean for currencies? Remember, fiscal and monetary policy objectives of the Democratic Party typically centers on public sector, job creation, increased government spending, as John mentioned, um, on things such as healthcare and, uh, and higher taxation, whilst the calling card of the Republican Party is typically for conservatism. This includes national debt reduction, private sector job creation, along with lower taxation, business-friendly legislature, and tighter government spending. As such, and going by that script, one typically would expect investors and traders to be bearish on the potential election of a Democratic leader relative to a Republican leader. In other words, against this political backdrop, it would suggest that should Biden win, we would see the dollar weaken, whilst a victory for Trump would see the dollar strengthen. Many analysts and economists are indeed seeing it this way, just as John alluded to earlier in his speech. However, in Donald Trump, we have a Republican candidate like no other that has been before. So this is where it gets interesting. The un unpredictable nature of his communication and leadership style, which has seen him start an aggressive trade war with China and seen him pull out of numerous, or pull the US rather, out of numerous multi multi multilateral uh, initiatives, gives the market something to consider when thinking in terms of confidence one has in the US government. With Biden, you're going to get an approach to climate change, and more importantly, China, that will be carried out in a different way. Policy approach to China that is widely expected to still be firm, but at the same time, more predictable, less driven by tweets, less subject to surprises, and to that end, markets may well see some advantage to that. If there is more confidence in the US government under Biden, um, international markets will see this as a dollar positive. Of course, a Biden administration with a Democratic Senate can get a lot done, whilst a Biden administration with a Republican-controlled um, Senate rather is going to be able to do much less. Regardless, if we do see a Biden victory, there seems to be an expectation in the market we are, we are to expect knee-jerk dollar weakness. This would support the view that markets will focus more on the fact that it is a Democratic candidate that is now in power rather than a Republican. However, be warned, there are counter arguments to this. Once the dust has settled and following the assumed knee-jerk dollar sell-off, it will not come as a surprise to currency experts if we were to see a reversal of sorts. Biden's administration in general will be more predictable and as John and Phil mentioned earlier, well, more, 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 more to Phil's point, the investing economics team's central view now is for Biden not only to take the White House, but for the Democrats to get the Senate and the House of Representatives too. Were this to happen, this means it will be easier for the US fiscal stimulus package to be pushed through, uh, which again would be dollar positive in the short term. Whilst our economists are not convinced that, that the so-called blue wave scenario, one in which Biden wins and the Democratic take control of the Senate, would be dollar negative, it's worth pointing out that there is a wide range of views on this. For one, if the polls do tighten, 
as much as 80% of dollar weakness may have already been priced in by the time the election day comes. Regardless, we have also heard from other market participants that a blue wave could result in dollar weakening. Some suggest this could be as much as 3%. Whilst there have been reports that a Trump status quo scenario of victory would see a 4.5% swing in the dollar the other way. To make matters more confusing, uh, of course, is the fact that all of the above mentioned basically assumes that there will be a clear-cut winner. But what if there is a contested election, which entails results are not known for days or weeks? Um, well, clearly the former will be positive for risk appetite, whilst the latter scenario will be, will be negative. So folks, that is um, a wrap for me on the US election and how to fix currencies. I appreciate that there is a lot to take in and there, and also I appreciate there are a lot of moving parts. Um, however, I do feel this gives you an overview of, I hope this gives you an overview of how currency markets might react to different election scenarios. Um, and finally, if I may point out that there is certainly plenty of time for twists and turns in this election run-in still to happen, so watch out for those. And to think I've managed to speak about currencies for over 10 minutes without mentioning Brexit and COVID once, Phil, how do you, what do you make of that? Um, but please do keep this in mind because in many respects, we are in the eye of the storm here. Um, and with, with the US election is, is obviously extremely important, but um, you know, time is short with regards to Brexit negotiations. And of course, we're all fully aware of the, the ramifications of COVID. So on that note, let me pass back to Phil to see if we have any questions. Thanks very much, Karen. Um, we have got a couple of questions coming in, but I would encourage all of you to to type your questions into the Q&A box, as ever, um, you will be anonymous, and I'll try and read out as many questions as I can. Um, I'll start first with a question for Kieran, which um, you mentioned Brexit, so um, this question is associated with it, really. Are your corporate clients more concerned um, or watching Brexit events more, or are they fixated on the US election? Yeah, it's a really, yeah, it's a really interesting one. Obviously, everything is coming to a crescendo at the same time, in a way. Um, and it's been a, a year of, of kind of different focus, really. If you think back to the first six months of this year, it's really been COVID and, and, and COVID-related you know, uh, news that has driven the pound. Um, but certainly in the last month or so, the focus has shifted to the, to the US election. But for sterling crosses, people who are, you know, um, watching sterling euro, sterling dollar, and and other sterling uh, crosses, um, it certainly has been Brexit that has driven driven news flows the most. Um, and I think that's one thing to, to to take away from what I mentioned when when talking about um, the US election. Certainly, that is very dollar focused and, and it's very risk focused, um, and will have a major impact, especially if there's a a shock. Say Trump does get into office uh, again. Um, but by and large, you know, there are big risks on, on Brexit. And, and if you think of it in terms of probabilities, the market is almost, it's almost too, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's, it's too risky to, to, to even contemplate us not being, um, you know, or not getting a deal by, by, by the end of the year. And so you, you, you would think that if we do get a deal, yes, there will be some sterling positivity and there will be some follow through there. Um, but it would certainly not be anywhere near as large as, as, as the fall we'd see in sterling crosses were, market to uh, you know uh, price in a, a, a no deal scenario so the probability is much lower of a no deal i'd say um but you know this the ramifications of a big move lower you know certainly is 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 is, is what would happen in that scenario thanks karen so it does look as if um corporate uk is still very much looking at uh, 
the outturn of the EU trade talks. Question coming through for John, and um, that's on the equity market. And the question is that much of the recovery in the US stock market has been characterized by a big rally in tech stocks, particularly the FANG stocks. More recently, however, we've seen industrials outperform the tech sector. Do you think this is a result of Biden and the Democrats in general doing better in the polls? Um, yeah, thanks for that question, Phil. Um, definitely. Uh, there's no doubt about the fact the market's beginning to position itself now for a Biden victory. Um, and uh, as I alluded to earlier, with the fiscal response that comes with that, um, that would tend to favour a kind of a slightly more cyclical um, uh, preference for investors uh, within the market. There's, there's no doubt about that, too. Um, I think also when you look at what's going on with those market leaders, uh, FANG stocks in particular, um, you know, people are also beginning to now look a little bit into 2021 and take the view that uh, there, you know, there will be some recovery from the COVID situation and that you can't keep on, you know, winning as, as much as these companies have done uh, in the last six months. So there'll be, it'll be a little bit of hiatus, but there's no doubt about the fact that they're still in a great place on a, you know, a longer term view, a five or 10 year view. Um, and as I say, you know, if you look at the valuations within the market between the winners and losers, there's been a massive divergence there. Not only in society do we have, you know, perceived and real inequality, we have it within the stock market as well. Um, and so every now and again, we, you know, we've seen over the last few years that there's been this, this elastic, which has stretched um, very, very far in terms of the valuation differential between the, the cyclicals and the growth stocks. Um, you know, has snapped in from time to time. We're just seeing a, a few little signs of that um, so far. But it definitely, you know, it, it could go up quite strongly further um, if all the stars align over the next uh, month or two. Thanks very much, John. Um, please do keep your questions coming through. Um, we've got one which I guess is for me, which is, is the uh, Biden administration good for UK-US trade deal? And I, I think I'd have to say probably not on, on that side in the sense that I think Trump is quite an Anglophile. And I think in principle, he just wants to be closer to the UK. Uh, Biden, on the other hand, I think if he has a priority on a free trade agreement, he's more likely to start concentrating on the European Union simply by virtue that it's a bigger trade bloc than the UK. Um, that's not to say that he won't consider the UK. And of course, any trade negotiation between his president um, is going to be difficult because that's the nature of trade deals. And we wouldn't expect anything to be agreed in a, a very short space of time anyway. But I think at the margin, you'd probably see that um, if and when Biden does win, then that it would tend to delay um, a, a, an FTA free trade agreement with, with the UK. Um, another question coming through is, um, should Biden win, as we've argued the polls are saying, are we likely to see a significant change of policy on climate change issues? And if so, which areas would likely benefit um, in terms of the equity markets? And I guess, John, that's probably a question which should be directed towards you. 
Um, yeah, thanks for that, Phil. Um, yes, is the answer. There'd definitely be a, a big policy change uh, as far as climate change is concerned. I think uh, Biden would immediately bring the US back into the, you know, the Paris Agreement in terms of uh, emissions. Um, and they would also, you know, push very strongly towards a clean energy policy and a, you know, zero or a carbon neutral policy in the United States as soon as possible. Um, in terms of the beneficiaries, um, it, it's never quite as easy as it looks um, to find these things. I mean, you know, people talk about all the, you know, copper that has to go into electric motors, the silver that goes into solar panels and those sorts of things. And uh, I'm sure they will gain some uh, from some speculative demand. Um, Looking at the longer term, the, one of the strong areas of the market already, because this train has, you know, definitely left the station, as it were, um, is uh, hydrogen power. So companies either that have uh, parts of their business in terms of producing hydrogen uh, or in terms of the technology to be able to produce it have already performed pretty well. But again, you could see those sorts of areas of the market continuing to um, benefit as well. Uh, and then there's obviously the other side of that coin, you know, is who does not benefit from it. I think this is where, you know, ESG investing is going to become a very uh, influential part uh, of the market. It's already gaining a huge amount of traction. So that's environmental, social and governance. So there are three sort of prongs to ESG, but the environmental side is obviously, you know, what we're talking about here. And what you tend to find is that companies who do not comply as well uh, with these factors, so they're not environmentally friendly, they don't have sort of good social provisions either for their workers or for the, you know, uh, the locations in which they work, um, and they don't have good corporate governments, um, they will over time be punished by markets and their cost of capital will go up and it'll be harder for them to do business and it'll be more expensive for them to do business. So um, also there's a greater, uh, you know, um, and deterrence, not quite the right word I'm looking for. There's a, there's a, a greater need for these companies to uh, uh, to increase their ESG credentials um, to, uh, to to make their businesses ultimately you know, more successful and more profitable in the future as well. So yes, there will be some some interesting shifts here. Thanks very much, John. I've got a couple of questions I think which are probably directed towards me, and one of them is that. Um, assuming a Biden victory, what do you think the key cabinet um, appointments will be? Uh, it's a tricky one, really. I, I think, I don't know about the whole of the cabinet, but obviously a key appointment will be the Treasury Secretary. And one um, theory is that the Treasury Secretary is, is, is likely to be a woman. And if it's likely to be a woman, the favourite could well be a lady called Lael Brainard, who at the moment is a, a governor on the Federal Reserve Board. Um, very well respected. I believe she's been an undersecretary at the Treasury Department in, in the past as well. So she may well be in the running, I suppose. Uh, another name could be Elizabeth Warren, um, who um, is a senator for Massachusetts, um, certainly to the left of the party and also a, a, a contender for the Democratic nomination as well. But I think, you know, out of the two, probably Lael Brainard would um, be the favourite. Um, in terms of other appointments outside the Cabinet, I, I guess we'd, we'd have to look towards the Federal Reserve at some point, because Jerome Powell's term as Fed Chair would expire in 2022, I think it is. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for continuity, that um, 
Powell, I think by trade, is a is a lawyer. He's not the most technical of Fed pre, uh, Fed chairs, and certainly not in the sort of style of Ben Bernanke or Janet Yellen. Um, but he seems to be doing a, a pretty good job under very difficult circumstances. Um, he's got a very good technical team behind him. So my guess would be that at the appropriate time, that you know, you know, if and it isn't if Biden becomes president, that he he would give Powell um, a second term here. Um, further question, I guess this is me as well. I think I touched on it a little bit. Is would a Biden win uh, cause a U-turn in? Uh, the U.S.'s approach to China, and does that mean that the global trade war is over? Um, okay, I think if you're sceptical, there are always trade tensions between trading blocks and individual countries, and um, sanctions are just sort of part of the trade landscape. But it, I, you, you could certainly see Biden taking a much more constructive attitude towards uh, China and, and negotiating um, rather than imposing sanctions first and then negotiating. But you know, if, if Biden is to win, he has to win some of those states, you know, such as, for example, Pennsylvania, um, which are manufacturing and, and steel states where that there is much disgruntlement with what um, people there see as unfair competition coming from China. So he, he can't go soft on China. You know, purely from the perspective that it would harm the Democrats' electoral prospects in, in 2024. Um, but certainly, yes, um, I would envisage that we will see um, a, um, a shift in approach and, and, and one that's less aggressive than the, the Trump um, administration. Question for John, and that is, um, do you think investors are prepared for a second wave of the coronavirus in Europe? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very contentious question in a way. Um, I think investors are reasonably well prepared, actually, yes, at this point. Um, the reason I say that is that if, if you look at the divergence in performance between winners and losers, I mean, you know, the COVID winners have done well and the losers have done badly and the losers haven't really started to recover that much. In fact, if you cast your mind back probably two months-ish, something like that, to the middle of the summer, uh, you'd seen some quite strong bounces in some of the, you know, like airline stocks and hospitality companies and, and companies such as those. And actually, uh, as people sort of, you know, began to think a little bit more about that and, and realize that actually this wasn't going to be something that was over quickly and start to maybe think that, you know, maybe vaccine was not coming quite as soon as they'd hoped for. Um, you've seen um, share prices of quite a lot of those companies go back down and hit new lows again um, in the last few weeks. So I think investors kind of understand this. Um, as I say, I think what will be really important is what happens to those companies, what the, you know, how much cash they've got to be able to survive. And, you know, the outcomes could be quite binary for some of these companies. It's, it's, it's either they don't or they do. Um, and it could be, you know, quite messy. Uh, but once people realize that they are going to survive, that could, um, you know, as I say, lead to quite a strong recovery. I think when one talks about the second wave as well, and we don't want to get too bogged down in talking about COVID, um, you know, stats and all that sort of stuff. But I think 
you know, the key thing to, you know, remember at this point is the, the numbers that we are fed on a daily basis by the press tend to be case numbers. And yes, there's no doubt about the fact that those have been shooting upwards and they are at, you know, highs, uh, in terms of the amount of daily cases that are being reported officially. Um, but, uh, the number of deaths is, you know, way lower, uh, than it was back in the first part of the surge in the spring. Um, and the hospitalizations remain lower as well. And the people who are in hospital tend to survive and not die. Uh, part of that is obviously because the, um, you know, the virus ripped through a very vulnerable part of the population early on. And sadly, you know, those people are, are now gone, as it were. Um, but to the same token, the medical profession has been absolutely brilliant over the last six months uh, in terms of coming up with uh, treatments and protocols for COVID patients and realizing what is good for them and what's not good for them, uh, looking at their comorbidities and all these sorts of stuff and making sure that they get the right treatment in hospitals. So things are, are not, nothing like as serious as they were uh, back in April. And the other thing, the sort of metaphor I use for this is the, the shark in Jaws, um, which is, you know, we spent, well, it's, it's almost 70% of the movie waiting for this big thing to appear out of the water. And we were scared to death. And when it finally showed its face, we all screamed. Um, and then after that, it was like, okay, yeah, we know that's a big nasty shark, but we kind of know what it is now. And it's a bit like that with COVID. You know, we've had the big shock at the start and it's not going to be as shocking a uh, second time uh, around at least you know that is the current thinking and i'm very very happy to um to 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 say that at this point thank you john uh we've got a couple of questions which are probably aimed towards me so i'll i'll, I'll take them um in in one block and uh, one of them is that um we mentioned that how biden and trump will position themselves on china um but with china recovering from covid quickly how would china react to a biden win um, and the second one is how quickly do you expect Biden to be removed and effectively being replaced by Vice President uh, Kamala Harris after the election? Uh, what are the likely market implications? OK, on the first one, I'm sure that China generally would probably welcome a Biden win. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the yuan, uh, the Chinese currency, has strengthened since it came back from its golden week holiday after the polls tilted more towards the Democrats. And I think the yuan now at the moment uh, closed today on a, on a two-year high against the US dollar. So I, I think that's pretty um, instrumental or, or pretty demonstrative evidence um, of which way China is thinking. Um, on the second one, um, I, I, I guess that's a, a, a George um, W. Bush uh, Dick Cheney type question. Um, Biden um, is a septuagenarian. I think uh, he and Trump are the two oldest ever candidates in the presidential election. Um, how quickly would he be replaced? I, I, I don't know. He, he seems to have a certain amount of longevity. Um, one argument for not appointing Kamala Harris as his running mate was that um, it would give her such an inbuilt advantage uh, for the Democratic nomination in 2024, that they were considering um, a female slightly less um, high profile. Now, Kamala Harris has been a, a US senator for California for quite some time. She's not towards the left of the party. So, you know, even if um, Biden were to taper himself down, 
Uh, I'm not convinced that US policy would, would change um, appreciably uh, and that there would necessarily be been um, many market implications. But I guess we, 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 we would have to see. I think unless there are any other questions, um, we have got a question on currencies. And um, I'm actually going to do a snap poll here across the panelists. And um, it's from someone who's missed part of the call um, and wants a quick summary of whether a Biden victory on the third of next month, um, including the House, I guess the Senate as well, is um, likely to weaken the US dollar. So I think in turn, I'm going to ask you a very quick um, question. One word answer, please. If there is a democratic clean sweep um, after November the 3rd, dollar up or dollar down? First of all, Kieran. Dollar down. And But uh, time frames are important, aren't they? I, I think it will be, uh, yeah, it's not a one word answer, but there you go. Dollar down in the immediate aftermath. Um, a lot of it will be priced in, but thereafter it could be a bit trickier to call. That's mine. <laughs> John, dollar up, dollar down. Blue um, Dollar down, definitely. And obviously, as far as sterling is concerned, uh, a Brexit deal would be sterling positive, too. So that could uh, put a bit of turbocharging in there. OK, I will say dollar up. It's not a high conviction view. Um, I'm a bit sceptical that a democratic win would, would, would push the, uh, the green back weaker for the um, reasons that um, we've discussed. Well, that brings the webinar uh, this week to a close. Um, I think what the discussions have outlined is that there is a lot to debate about the various bits and pieces, a lot of moving parts with the US election itself. And indeed, um, there are no quick answers to which way markets would move given the various scenarios which are possible. So I think you all agree it's a fascinating time. Thank you very much for attending and thank you also very much to our panelists, Kieran Russell and John Wynne Evans, and we'll see you in two weeks time. Thank you very much and keep safe.